This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. A new study that has been written about at some length today has found, maybe not shockingly to you, maybe it is shocking to you, but has found that we Canadians now spend more on taxes than on food, shelter, and clothing combined. Now think about that for a second. We spend more on food, shelter, and clothing combined. Have you seen the Canadian housing market lately? Just take out the food and the clothing. The shelter part alone would shock most people, but we spend more on taxes than food, shelter, and clothing combined. It's now estimated that we, the average income tax governments collect was $10,616 in 2015, Payroll and health taxes were $7,160. Sales taxes were nearly $5,000. And property taxes were almost $4,000 for the average person. And then profits, uh, taxes on liquor, tobacco, fuel, natural resources, import duties, all that stuff, another $7,500. We are spending money like crazy on taxes. Christine Van Gein is the Ontario Director of the Ontario Taxpayers Federation, and I'm reasonably sure she may have something to say about this. Uh, Christine, thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are you surprised at all when you start hearing the numbers and you start hearing that we're paying, the number actually is 42.4% on average of what we're making going towards taxes. Is that surprising to you? Well, it's not surprising to me. I mean, I deal with this on a daily basis. But I think for a lot of Ontario families, uh, they don't really realize that 42% of their income is going towards taxes. This is including uh, the income taxes as well as property taxes, health care premiums, uh, liquor taxes, gas taxes, payroll taxes, property taxes, and everything else. It's not just what you file in the form that you, um, you submit to CRA. It's all the different taxes that this study has looked at. Um, and I've got to tell you, it, it wasn't always so. It used, the study finds that it used to be the case that we were spending more on the necessities of life than we were in uh, spending on taxes. But the percentage of uh, the rate of increase in taxes has grown dramatically in the past 40 years. Um, it's, it's increased by about uh, 1,886% wow. in contrast. The consumer price index has uh, increased by less than by about half of that. So, um, you know, the cost of living goes up, but the cost of taxes goes up a lot faster. You know, back in the '60s, when the Beatles wrote their song about the tax man, they were kind of saying it as a joke about all the things that they were taxing. Now it's our reality. Yeah, and I mean, the the province here in Ontario just comes up with more and more creative ways of taxing us without telling us. So take, for example, the carbon tax that's going to come into effect in January. Um, that's a tax that's going to apply to our home heating bill. It's going to apply to gasoline as well as to all manufactured products. Now, Kathleen Wynne is not just applying this new tax on things. She's actually going to be applying a sales tax on top of the carbon tax. So we'll be paying a tax on tax, and she wasn't really going to tell us that. It was a story that was broken by CTV. Uh, so, you know, more more taxes, more creative taxes, and more hidden taxes. That's the direction that this government's going in Ontario and across Canada. Christine, how did we actually get here, though? Because you talked about that number, like eighteen hundred percent or something, that we've gone up. How did we? I, I mean, I know it's been incremental, but it just all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you see the amounts that we're paying, and you sort of slap yourself in the in the head and you say, "How did we get here?" 
Well, it's because a lot of politicians use obfuscation. They aren't really transparent about um, the taxes that they're applying. As, as I mentioned, a lot of these are hidden taxes or taxes on taxes that they don't tell us about. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is that they keep using the same excuses for raising our taxes. They keep saying, oh, these taxes are to repair our roads. Well, if they've been increasing our taxes at this rate for the past 40 to 50 years, why are our roads still falling apart? They use the same excuse to hike our taxes, but those things don't actually improve. We don't see the services getting any better, but what we do see are perks for politicians going up. You know, thousands spent on personal photographers to follow the Minister of the Environment around Paris, um, luxury lounge passes and limousines. Those perks don't pay them for themselves. Um, the politicians turn around and ask taxpayers to pay for us, pay for those perks for them, and then they increase our taxes kind of in 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 secret uh, in order to, to fund that kind of thing. And now we reach the point where even if we would love to see taxes slashed and cut way back, would you agree that we've almost reached the point where we we almost can't because you look at the numbers and you know, I saw something the other day that says Ontario is paying a billion dollars in interest a month. Is that right? In just to, to, to pay the interest on the debt that we owe. I mean, you can't then really just say, okay, we're going to lop everything right back to where it was before the war or something. Well, what you have to do is if you're going to reduce taxes, which I, I don't agree with you on that. I think we absolutely could reduce taxes. I think 11 different tax brackets in Ontario is simply outrageous. Um, tax on tax is outrageous. A lot of the things that you see government spending money on, um, you know, this cap-and-trade policy that's going to see tax money going to California, um, we don't need these policies. We don't need our politicians to have luxury lounge passes or personal photographers. Right, and um, I agree. Listen, I uh, don't misunderstand. I agree with you a thousand percent that we can cut taxes and cut out an awful lot of the crap that is being wasted. I agree a million percent. My point is, we can't really get back to the days when taxes were a small, small part of our of what we're paying, can we? I mean, we can get rid of some, but I mean, how far back can we actually cut it now with the debt that we owe, just to service the debt? How much could we actually get rid of? Yeah, so with the, with the debt being the third largest expenditure of the Ontario government and the fastest growing expense of the Ontario government, um, they've made it a difficult situation um, just just because the cost of paying the interest on that credit card on that on that debt is so high about a billion dollars a month you're right um, it's difficult to cut taxes what we need to do is balance the budget make sure that spending is brought under control and uh, make sure that we take care of that debt and then we can reduce taxes and um, you know stop turning to the public to hard-working Ontario families to finance these ridiculous perks and policies and pet projects of politicians. We're talking with Christine Gein, the Ontario Director of the Ontario of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Um, okay, I, the, I, what you've said is absolutely true, but it seems to me again that we ourselves are to blame for this because we keep electing governments that no government runs on a on a platform that says we're going to go out there and cut fifty percent of everything in all the programs that we do. Every politician that runs for office promises stuff that always costs money and we always buy into that. We're always suckers and we pay, we, we elect the people who promise us more stuff. It's our own fault. Um, well, yes, of course the, the, the public is who chooses who they want to have govern them. 
Um, I think the problem is politicians aren't really honest about um, the cost of these programs or about the generational problem of debt. We've created a situation where our children and grandchildren are um, are not going to be able to afford the things that, that we afford here in Ontario um, today. Um, we've created a situation where the cost of living is is really unaffordable in Ontario. Take, for example, hydro rates. It's, it's government's policies that have resulted in hydro rates spiraling out of control. Um, but what we need to do is focus on a government that will promise to balance the budget, will actually do it, and then we can see the amount we spend on interest payments every month reduced and have more money for services that people in Ontario actually value. I think people value uh, spending money fixing roads that are that are crumbling and falling apart. But the thing is, politicians keep promising to fix these things. They keep hiking our taxes, and then they don't actually prom- deliver on the promises that they've made. Um, instead, they come up with these kind of utopian um, visions of a of a green green province. This this climate change action plan that Wynne has promised is um, a utopian vision of the future that is totally unrealistic and will have no impact on the environment whatsoever. But will drive businesses out of the province and cost Ontario families a lot of money. And again, you know, I've said on the show, I've talked on the show, people who listen regularly will know this, that it's a huge bugaboo of mine that politicians, they love to build new shiny things and cut ribbons at at community centers and arenas and whatever else, these big, exciting things, but to fix a bridge or fix the road or something else that is maintenance, fix the sewers and the pipes. Well, you know what? No one ever cuts a ribbon when your sewer is fixed. And so we end up just blowing millions and millions and millions of dollars on stuff that is when we have other, these other things that need to be done. And then when we need to do those things, well, that means we need more money. We need more taxes because we need more money to fill all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot less exciting to announce to someone that you've, you've to announce to the public that you've repaired a bridge that had already been built. Um, So instead what we see is, is this government here in Ontario proposing tolling a bridge that they've already built um, and that we've already paid for with our taxes, effectively having us pay for that bridge twice or paying for that highway twice, um, just so that they can finance new big government visions of, of what the perfect world would look like. Instead, what they need to do is, is let people keep more of their own money. Uh, they need to make sure that they keep their, their spending at reasonable levels uh, and balance the budget. That's really what matters. It's not the shiny new things. It's the boring functions of government. It's repairing roads and bridges, um, doing the mundane tasks. That that should be the priority of government, not um, hiking your taxes to pay for these shiny new things, as you said. So where is the cutoff? Uh, As I say, I'm I'm very pessimistic that the electorate anywhere in Canada is going to elect a government that is going to promise less stuff. We don't like to vote in people who vote for less stuff. But regardless of that, Where's the cutoff? We're now paying for almost, we're getting close to half of our wages are going towards taxes. Is it 60%? Is it 75%? When does everybody say, hold on a second, this is insane? Yeah, you know, I think that in Ontario, we're really reaching a tipping point where the cost of living is is so unbearable that a lot of people are, are choosing to leave the province and a lot of businesses are choosing to leave the province. I mean, the cost of housing alone in the city of Toronto is, is outrageous. Um, and now we have uh, the, the premier contemplating openly allowing other cities outside of Toronto 
to apply a double land transfer tax. Um, that's something that could cost um, a $400,000 home between ten dollars and $15,000. That's a huge new tax increase um, that isn't even contemplated in this report that was just issued. So um, just as I said, it's government getting more creative ways of taxing us without telling us. Um, I think that the focus should be on getting the government out of more areas of our lives and doing the simple and kind of more boring administrative functions of government. Um, and if you're going to elect someone, to elect them based on reasonable promises about spending restraint, about making the cost of living going down. Um, hydro is just totally unaffordable. Housing is unaffordable. And the government that we have today is doing things that are going to increase those costs both of them. And are you talking are you talking about government at every level or just provincially right now? I, I'm talking provincially at the moment, but of course the, the federal government ran on a on a platform of, of deficits. They ran on a platform of, of ten million dollar ten billion dollar deficits, which turned into uh, thirty billion dollar deficits. So um, just you know, the the people who follow this kind of issue closely aren't surprised. That's the whole reason we don't like deficits because uh, a promise of a small deficit always turns into a, into a large deficit, and people don't really uh, understand the difference between ten billion and thirty billion dollars. But um, you know that pays for a lot of a lot of roads. It pays for a lot of treatment for kids with autism, and those are things that people value a lot more than. Um, you know, uh, limousines for cabinet ministers. It is amazing that the one promise that politicians are able to keep is the one where they say we're going to spend more money than we have. That they're able to do. That, that one they can stick with. The other ones they have more trouble with. Uh, Christine Van Gein from the Ontario, or from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks so much for doing this tonight. Appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it is it is interesting as a as a add on to what Christine just said that. If you read the spec yesterday, Steve Bust has a piece in the paper. You can go back. You can still go online and read it about Hamilton and about the vast drop in the number of children that are living in the city. You know, we have this motto that it's the best place to raise a child. And what was the uh, the new one? The best place to raise a child and age successfully. We had a little fun with that one. But the idea of the best place to raise a child, well, in the city of Hamilton, the number of children is dropping precipitously. There are far, far fewer kids. Schools, dozens of schools are closing because there aren't as many kids. And when Steve was doing his research and when Steve was interviewing for this piece, and you can read about it, and you should read it because it's fascinating, one of the big overriding themes is that people aren't having kids, some, because they can't afford it. They can't afford a house. And so they don't want to raise their kid in a one-bedroom apartment. So they're waiting until they can actually get enough money together to get a place to live. Well, they don't have that money. They can't foresee that happening. So the kids get put off. They don't have stable employment. They may be on a six-month contract or something. Well, do I want to bring a kid into the world if I really don't know if I've got to have if I've got a paycheck coming in? It goes on and on and on. And so much of this, so much of this, when you look at 42, 43% of our income on average is being paid in taxes. And you know what? We talked about this last night indirectly. We were talking about politicians and their pensions 
And I actually argued last night, though I am not a free spending, let's spend tax dollars willy-nilly, I don't believe that. But I argued that we have to at least promise the top levels of politicians, the executive levels of politicians, decent pensions, if they want, if we want to attract good people. What we don't do, what we shouldn't be doing is what we're reading about today, where the politicians who went to that environmental conference in France, in Paris last year, right after the Liberals were elected and like 400 Canadians went and 12 people spent something like $150,000 on food over the course of a week. They were dining clearly at the most lavish establishments. As Christine was mentioning, we have stories of politicians spending $7,000 for photos at that conference, people taking limousines where they don't need to. It's one thing to pay the necessities, and we're all okay with paying necessities. Honestly, we are. I don't think anybody really bristles at the idea of paying your fair share of taxes towards the necessities. But when 43% of our income is being taken away and you look around and you see it just being flushed down the toilet... That's when you look and you go, come on, this is, this is absolutely a ridiculous situation. It has to be fixed somehow. Frank actually sends an email. The simple answer is this government can't say no. I don't know which one. I assume he's talking about the provincial government, but he could be talking about any one of them. The simple answer is this government can't say no, and they are trying to please everyone, no matter the cost. Well, that's the problem with most governments, isn't it? They want to win your vote, so they will pay to win that vote. And our taxes go up as a result. 43%. You are now paying more than for shelter, for food, and for clothes. Every year, out that money goes to pay for taxes for whatever it is. You have no say over it. But you earn the money. But it's not yours anymore. Give it to the government and then watch it be wasted. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We know in this country that if you are a young person who is good at sports, any good at sports, you make your way by going down and getting an NCAA scholarship, crossing the border into the United States and playing down there with American athletes. That's just what you do. That is, that is how we distinguish the good athletes from the bad athletes. Where did you play your university sports? Oh, you played at Ohio State? You played at Michigan? You played at Texas? You must be great. You played at Western, you played at Mac, mm, okay. I mean, is that not typically how we would consider if someone came home, if your next door neighbor came home wearing a Notre Dame football jacket, would you not go, wow, we would. And it's certainly true in some cases. However, here's the thing. Here's why we're talking about this tonight. In Rio at the Olympics that just ended, 158 athletes with ties to Canadian university sports were competing. And when Canada came home with 22 medals, 16 people who were connected to Canadian university sports made the podium, were wearing medals by the end of the games. And I think that's going to be an absolute shock to people. I'll tell you one guy who I think probably isn't shocked, but we'll find out from him. Neil Lumsden, not just a Canadian Football Hall of Famer, the general manager of the last Hamilton Ticats team to win a great cup, uh, competitor on the Amazing Race. He is also now, father of Jesse, he is also now the athletics director at Brock University. He joins me now. Neil, how are you tonight? I'm outstanding. How are you? I, listen, I'm, I'm well, and when I started to see these numbers, I'll be honest, I, I mean, I like Canadian University sports. I cover a lot of it. 
I was surprised. I have to believe that there will be an awful lot of people if they hear these numbers that say, wow, I, I had no idea that it would be that, w- that guys or girls playing at that level of sports would be this successful on the world stage. Yeah, I, I, and I, I think we have, you know, you, in the opening, you, you made a couple of comments, and I think that uh, I, I, maybe it's an inferiority complex we have, and, and it trickles down. It certainly isn't in the athlete's mind. It isn't in the athlete's preparation and their and their willingness and their desire and their commitment to to whatever sport they're involved in, but I think it like you said it, it as it, we have a tendency in Canada just to unless it's hockey related and that's coming at us now twelve months of the year whether it's internationally or locally that that's really sort of our sport. But when when you watch the Olympics and you see Canadians compete, not only young guys and gals that win medals, but you know, our, our third or fourth, fifth, sixth in the world, uh, and a lot of them, as you say, come out of CIS programs, I think it's a, it's a great indication that, you know, sport in Canada is at a high level, but it always goes down, it comes down to one thing, and I've said this for years, and I, I always always uh, sort of used it in terms of football, is we, we have great football players in this country. We produce great players. Uh, we produce great athletes in this country, as is proven by the Olympics. We just haven't, as comparison to the United States, haven't got as many of them just based on a population base. So, and funding in some cases has something to do with it, but it's more. I think it's more numbers. So, um, and yet you look at what we did, and you think uh, we competed and beat and uh, with, I guess, the best on the planet. And look how we did. So, um, I, I just wish in, in the general population uh, weren't as tied into. As you said, the Notre Dame or Ohio State, the one thing the United States do and in some European countries based on the sport are very passionate about sport and specific ones more than others, but are pretty passionate about them when they get behind it. We just seem to have a hard time doing that other than hockey. You are in a unique position because not only are you at Brock, and so you get to see the Brock athletes up close, and you have... Argu- well, not even arguably, you guys have the best wrestling program in Canada. Uh, and so you got to see, for example, Michelle Fazari, who's a Hamilton woman who now wrestles for out of Brock. Um, so you get to see that up close. But you're also the father of an athlete who came through the Canadian university system and in a different sport went on to the Olympics. And I'm, I'm wondering, when you were dealing with Jesse, when he was coming up, and he was thinking about a career in sports, probably not thinking of being a bobsledder when he was coming through high school. But was there ever a thought that, man, if you do want to really advance, you do have to look south of the border? Was that in the back of your mind ever? Because you went to Canadian University, but was that a thought that, man, we maybe we need to push you down there to get the best chance? I, I don't know. I, that's a great, actually, that's a really good question. And first off, I also want to say, just before we continue on, you, you talked about Michelle and, there's Jasmine and Jessica Lewis, who's a, a, a Paralympian, and she's uh, on Team Bermuda. And we have others, Marty Calder, an assistant coach with the women's team, our head coach for wrestling. And, and we, have, we, we were very involved and very proud of and we're very proud of all of them. But, you know, the, the one thing that did happen in, in high school, or not in high school, but more so in, in Jesse's third and fourth year, going into the third and fourth year at McMaster, was he did an examination of really – what was available to him to try to get to that next level. And, you know, that was in the early 2000s, or I guess it was, yeah. And I, and I think what he found was he, he felt he had to go down there and train. Uh, he went to Arizona. We were very supportive, uh, went down and visited him both years, and he came back. 
a very different athlete. These days, you don't have to do that in Canada. There are there are not only this the very highly skilled and competent trainers, whether it's nutrition, whether it's strength and conditioning, all those sorts of things in this country, and we also have the space and the ability with equipment. And what you know, the Pan Am Games was a was a massive boost for us in that respect in Eastern Canada. We have the facilities to train these young men and women. So you don't have to chase. You don't have to find a place across the border. We have all that at home now. And I think it's really paying off. It paid off in the Winter Olympics, and it's pay- and it paid off in these Summer Olympics, So especially in swimming. So uh, I think that you don't have to chase it anymore. And I really think those athletes like Jess that has, been, has competed on the world stage, I mean, they did a world push championships in Calgary a couple of years ago. You know, a shocker. All the guys, all the big guys across the, the world were competing, and guess who won at the Canadian? I mean, it's it's not surprising that we can compete at all those levels. Uh, it's just more people need to pay attention and, and get excited about what these young men and women represent because they represent us. They, You know, you talk about, and I've talked to more than one or two, that when they get a chance to wear uh, a the Team Canada uniform, and I would dare say some of the professional athletes and hockey players that get that chance, it's a very different world for them, and uh, mm. it's, uh, it's pretty special. Shona Thorburn was on here last night talking about that very thing, that uh, that opportunity is, is pretty unique. Uh, just have a minute or so left here. Um, yeah. For us to be successful, though, we don't, not all of our universities have the budgets of the massive American schools still. Right. So when we are going to produce these athletes in Canada who can compete on the world stage, do we have to kind of do what Brock has done in some way, and that is pick a sport and really consolidate around that. Again, you guys are three-time men's and women's consecutive wrestling champions. You guys have put a lot of effort into really being a center of excellence around that sport. Is that the way you have to do it now almost, that a school has to pick one or two sports and really focus on those? Well, I think it's tough to do it all, and I know one of the mandates of Brockton coming here, we've just hired on Steve Lidstone, who is one of the best in the country at what he does in strength and conditioning and, and that side of sport and we're building a performance center in, in, in the uh, Walker, Walker Center. That I don't, I don't think you – no, I, I, we've got what everyone needs. Um, to, to, we, will, we as Brock want to be competitive at, at a, a bunch of levels, and we're going to put that back on the athletes because, believe it or not, they thrive when they get the opportunity to. So you can't be number one at everything. Wrestling with Marty uh, has been great for a lot of years. And it will continue to be. And, and students and student athletes will get drawn to that, just like they did in football to Mac and Western and Laval and U of C. And that, and now those schools aren't just exclusive. Other schools like Guelph are competing at a high level. Schools are catching up, so it's it's less likely to see that. But if you can get your foot in the door, when you've got uh, someone like a Tanya Verbeek who's come out of Brock, went to the Olympics, medaled, and now she helps and coach when she can and works for the national team, that draws the athlete in that discipline. You can do it for more than one or two, but that doesn't stop you from being competitive at all the other levels, and, and that's one of our goals. Neil Lumsden, Athletic Director at Brock University. Neil, appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks. Uh, it was a pleasure, Scott. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, yeah. Now let's, let's keep this rolling because there is another school that is even closer that also has produced a lot of people who have gone down and competed in the Olympics. We have had Adam Vancouver Dan win gold medals 
for Canada. We have had Andrew York, the triathlete who was just down there. Glenn Grunwald is the athletics director at McMaster. Glenn, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, Scott. Let me. Uh, I was just talking to Neil Lumsden. Let me ask you the same thing I started with with him. We had 158 CIS-connected athletes competing in the Olympics. 16 of them won medals. When you hear those numbers, and you're an American guy, I mean, I know you're Canadian now, but you came up through the American system. Does that do those kind of numbers surprise you even now that there's that much success? Well, I think it's impressive, and I think it's an indication as, of the, the development of the sport and the uh, development of the inter, uh, university athletic system here in, in Canada that, that we're trying to produce these athletes. There are still obviously some sports that it is going to be beneficial for people to go down to schools in the States. I mean, Andre DeGrasse is training at USC. There are... I don't think there's a track school, for example, up in Canada that can compete with that right now. But that said, 10 of the 12 members of the Canadian volleyball team that beat the American team were CIS guys. And so I'm wondering, what do we do well up here? What is it that we are doing really well that can allow us to compete with Americans? Well, I think, you know, some of the things where you can identify an athlete that's extremely tall or extremely, extremely big that, uh, uh, you know, you can you can recruit those guys away, but it's it's some of the other sports that are that are less uh, uh, you know well known that that we can uh, excel at and and develop a uh, a, a strong base of of of, of athletes. Having I have a bad connection here, Scott. Sorry, I don't know oh, what's going on. No, sorry about that. Should we, uh, Luke? Let's try um let's try Glenn back really quickly if we can. Um, just redial him to see if we if we can get a better connection. Uh, we'll get Glenn. We'll get right back to you and see if we get a better line here. All right. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, well, it, it's again we we have Glenn's talking about the fact that it's you know it's easy to find the six foot eleven Canadian guys who an American school can come up and say yeah we can grab that guy of course he's going to learn how to play basketball or he can be a good basketball player it's it's some of the other some of the other people that are more difficult to find that maybe if we have the the coaching and the opportunities up here that we will be able to excel with them there. I hope that's a little bit better, Glenn. Yes, much better. Sorry, Scott. All right, so again, we have not been able always over the years to be pumping out this number of world-class athletes. We've always had good athletes, but not in this kind of volume. So what is it that we're doing now then? What are, What has changed in the CIS that we are producing this many better athletes? Well, I think we're being a bit more strategic. Uh, I know one of the goals of the new... Uh CEO of the CIS is to partner with all the national governing bodies, so that uh, we're we're in sync with uh, with with their their national team athletes, and, and we can you know continue with the uh, the uh, athlete development models that they want to institute. And, and the other thing that we're doing at the university levels, we're partnering with with various uh, uh, clubs and and high schools to to sort of keep them in the elite development stream. And so I think we're being a bit more strategic. We're being smarter about how we train, and we're using the latest technology and the latest techniques, and I think that's paying dividends. Was it a, a, a performance then by the Canadian athletes at the Olympics like this? Was that really important for Amer- for Canadian schools to use as a selling tool to show you don't have to go south? Oh, I think so. And, uh, you know, obviously you're, you're not going to be able to stop everyone, but each each athlete has to make his or her own decision in terms of what's best for them. And may, it may be that staying close to home will be better emotionally for them, and they'll, that's such a big part of, of being successful, too. So, you know, each athlete has to make his own decision, his or her own decision about, about what's best for them and where, where they would do best 
in terms of uh, developing it and becoming uh, reaching their potential. Last year in the fall, I wrote about your men's volleyball team. They went down to Ohio State for a uh, for a exhibition series, and they swept Ohio State. And when I wrote about this and they came back, people were shocked because Ohio State was, not only is it one of the biggest schools in the States, but it's a top-ranked men's volleyball program. And McMaster went down there and, and swept them. And I think it speaks to a lot of perceptions. And I wonder, how do we change the perception then that our sports, in, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, that the athletes up here are just as good as the ones down there? Well, I like to say that, uh, you know, Ohio State went on to win the NCAA championship. So we won the NCAA's, McMaster. <laughs> we won the runner-ups uh, in the CIS. Okay. So, no, uh, no, we have we have a great coach. We have a great program. And we, we were able to recruit, uh, you know, top-notch athletes to, to our to our volleyball program. So that, that's a big part of it. And, and, and we treat them well. And, and we make sure that, that uh, you know, we're student-athlete focused. What's best for them is the main thing. I think oftentimes uh, you'll see in the NCAA that it is such a big money business that uh, the, the, the needs, the, uh, what's best for the student-athlete often falls to the wayside. And, uh, and I think that's something that we really have to emphasize here in Canada that that we really are dealing with student athletes here, and we're really trying to develop the whole person, and uh, and we're also doing a great job in terms of developing them as athletes. Do you think it's possible, though? Just as we go here, we got to go to a break. Do you think it's possible to change that perception, or or is it just so locked in that it's going to take decades and decades, if ever? Well, again, it's going to be. We have to all work together in the sports community in Canada, and that means the national governing bodies, that means the universities, that means the private trainers, that means the high schools. And we have to develop a long-term athlete development model that, that fits all within together so that our best athletes wind up uh, training here, uh, living here, and, and winning for, for Canada. And I think, you know, we're heading in that direction. Obviously, there's a lot of moving pieces. Some sports will be better at it than others. But, uh, you know, I think we're, we're, like I said, we're being a lot more strategic and a lot more intelligent about how we're approaching this. Glenn Grunwald, appreciate the time. Uh, by the way, uh, McMaster football kickoff this Sunday night, 7 o'clock, if you're interested in uh, going down. I'm sure you'll be there as well. It'll be fun. Against Carlton, it'll be a good game. Thanks, Glenn. Appreciate the time. Thank you. That is Glenn Grunwald from McMaster. Um, you can go online and read a lot more about our university athletes. Again, it's shocking to a lot of people how well they did because we just so often don't think of Canadian university athletes in that light. And yet you stack them up on the world stage at the Olympics against the best in the world. And you know what? They held their own. And in some cases did much better than hold their own. And I think that's a surprise to a lot of people. And whether that translates into people going and watching some of these sports at Canadian universities now, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Because it still doesn't have, in some cases, the big show and the TV and the hype and everything else. But when it comes right down to it, when you're just talking about pure performance and you compare apples to apples, Canadian university athletes did very, very well this time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, we are going to be chatting about, um, about the roads in this city with my next guest, David Ferguson, Hamilton's superintendent of traffic engineering. But just before we do, I understand he is at the ballpark tonight watching his son, who is a star player on the Pee Wee Binbrook Brisons. David, how are they doing tonight? How's your son doing? Uh, we're doing all right, Scott. We're, uh, we're tied up in the, in the bottom of the fifth, so we're up to bat right now. A- and how's your boy doing? 
Yeah, he's all right. He's uh, he's two for two. He's uh, he just uh, struck out the side at the top of the inning there. So see, I told the people that he was a star. That's how he's, that. That's a game. <laughs> that's a game that he's having. That's okay. Yeah. Um, there is a. I find this really interesting. People who are driving on the Red Hill Creek Expressway these days, uh, if they are wondering, you know, gee, I wonder what the speed limit is along here. I'm guessing, David, they are not going to be guessing for very long because you guys are putting up some of the biggest speed limit signs I've ever seen along that route. I mean, these things are the size of a garage door. These are the biggest speed limit signs I've ever seen in my life. Why is it? What is the purpose behind putting the signs up? Well, we had a, we had hired a consultant uh, in 2015 and uh, submitted a safety report to council in December. And uh, part of the recommendation was to install additional signage, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and uh, obviously highlight it and, and make them bigger than uh, the existing signs. So the signs that are out there now are a size of five feet by four feet. Well, yeah. Well, and, and is the idea then that people didn't know what the speed limit was on that street because maybe it looks like or feels like a street, a road where you should be going faster, or was it just as a reminder? Um, well, they are regulatory signs. I mean, they're, they're identifying what the law is and what the, the speed limit is on those roadways. Uh, one of the things that was identified in the, in the consultant's report is uh, people come off of the provincial highway network and enter onto the parkway. However, uh, as a motorist, when you're driving on the, that, those two roadways, you, you have a sense or a feeling that you're still on a highway network. Um, and you're obviously not. It's designed as a parkway. It's not designed as a provincial highway. But because you have on-ramps and off-ramps, uh, there can be confusion. So uh, by adding these signs, there's uh, definitely uh, <laughs> no denying what the speed limit is on that roadway. <laughs> you're bang on, though, because when you come off, especially down by the lake, when you come off the highway and you get onto Red Hill Creek, you you have to be really paying attention to your gas pedal because you can very easily get motoring along there. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, like I said, the, the design itself isn't set for anything that a provincial highway is designed for. So uh, this is something that uh, will help to, to raise awareness and, and, and make people aware of what the limit is. Is this road uniquely or particularly troublesome within this city for that problem, for, for speeding? I mean, do we have, are there more people speeding on the Red Hill Creek Expressway than there are on other roads that we know of? Well, roadways uh, that are designed and operate in that kind of fashion, almost uh, uh, like a, a freeway, uh, even though it's not, it's a parkway. Um, when you don't have any types of stop controls, traffic signals, stop signs, um, it, the speeds do have a tendency to, to be higher than the posted speed limit. Uh, the concern with those two roadways was that the, the speeds, uh, the operating speeds are, are a little higher than, than what they should be, and, and that was a concern, and obviously we were having incidents uh, occurring on, on both roadways. So. Uh, we really wanted to address the safety aspect and, and improve on that and uh, make all of our residents and, and motorists that even travel through our city, uh, we want them to be able to do that in a safe manner. In the consultant report, in the study, was there any indication of how many people a day or what percentage a day are speeding on that road? 
if I recall correctly, the, the consultant's report uh, averaged about the estimated 500 vehicles uh, a day were ex- exceeding uh, the posted speed limit and, and the actual operating design speed of the roadway. Um, so that, uh, I know when that initially came out, it, it created some debate. Um, <clears throat> since that report was issued, uh, Hamilton Police Services, uh, partnering with us through our Hamilton Strategic Road Safety Program, uh, undertook a, a dedicated um, enforcement campaign. And I believe uh, since the last time I talked to them, I think they were in the area of uh, 3,000 infractions had been issued in hmm. over a period of about five months. The, you prob- I don't know if you know the answer to this, but is it a worse problem in one direction or the other? And I ask that because, again, of that idea of coming off the provincial highway. I'm wondering if you nail more people or if the speed is higher, ironically, going up than coming down. Uh, that I don't know. Uh, again, if I recall correctly, in, in looking at the consultant's report, the the speeds were similar in both directions. So it was an issue occurring in both directions. It wasn't one really over another. Is this, and I know you've heard this before, I'm not breaking any news to you, there have been criticisms of this road for a variety of reasons. With all that you talked about, is, is this a poorly designed road for what it's meant? I, I would say no. I, I mean, uh, when the roadway was designed, it, as I said, it, it was designed as a parkway. And, and I think where the failure may be is, is in terms of education and understanding uh, of the type of roadway that it is and making people aware of it. Um, you know, I, I hear over the past year and a half, people refer to them as freeways, and, and that's not the case. It, they are parkways. They're not meant uh, for high vehicle speeds. They're meant really for inner-city inner travel uh, to help the citizens get around. They're, they're for the use of uh, commercial travel and, and getting our, our products either out or into the city. And so it, it's more of a, it was more designed uh, to provide that intermodal connection uh, within the city. You have used three words that um, maybe everyone listening understands what they mean. Uh, I'm not sure I do. You've said expressway, <laughs> you've said parkway, you've said freeway. What's the difference between those three? Uh, so the, the freeways, highways, uh, they are uh, essentially all controlled or under the jurisdiction of, of the province. Uh, they are the roadways that you will see posted at 100 kilometers. Um, from a municipality standpoint, you, you get into the highest level would be something like this, a parkway. Uh, however, because we're a municipality, uh, you can't actually post a uh, above 90k that's the highest speed limit you can do you can't actually uh, post at 100 so when you design a roadway <clears throat> you're designing it for a posted speed limit of 90 kilometers an hour the um the, the other thing about this there has been a lot of talk in the city now i know it was shot down by the province right now about putting some photo radar on there photo radar on there are, are these gigantic speed limit signs a precursor sort of a setup to that because once you know once we put this up there everybody knows what the speed is and then we can drop some photo radar if things go well in and no one really can complain that we they didn't know how fast they should be going yeah well there's a there are a couple of things with that one of the things we're currently testing out as you may be aware we've we've recently opened our traffic management center uh, we have about uh, 70 intersections in the city that we monitor with uh, cameras. 
uh, and it can modify signal timings at the intersections. We're also using that product now to test it out on the highways uh, to monitor vehicle speeds and the operating speed of the roadway. So our plan is that these cameras or the system will be able to monitor the operating speed and when it reaches a certain threshold, uh, it'll notify ourselves and the police and the police can then dedicate uh, enforcement uh, when we see that the speeds are, are starting to increase. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the photo radar discussion, um, that was obviously removed by the province uh, many years ago. Uh, it has come back, back up in discussions. Uh, we are a member of a Provincial Road Safety uh, uh, Committee, and uh, at the last meeting there, there was discussion about uh, uh, photo enforcement and it is something that the municipalities are interested in and, and will be pursuing with the province uh, about how we can undertake uh, some type of pilot project uh, utilizing uh, photo radar. Just before we let you go, a couple other things I want to ask you quickly about, because we, I mean, th- this city, I've got to tell you, there is more discussion about roads and transportation in this city than I think there is anywhere else in the world. You you, you have a job that has more people talking about stuff. Honestly, it, it's, um, whether it's bike lanes or anything else, but let's start with the, the, you're introducing now these large zebra stripe sidewalks or crosswalks, pardon me, that are going in around the city. Um yeah. Very quickly explain to people, because I know they've heard them talked about, what's the idea behind these? How are these going to make things better? Well, the latter crosswalks uh, are obviously, they're, they're a lot different than the, the normal two lines that you usually see for a crosswalk. So from a visual standpoint for a motorist, because they're more visible, um, as they're approaching a location where these latter crosswalks uh, are installed, it's a visual reminder to the motorists to, to be aware uh, of pedestrians in the area. Um, and so then it's helping to improve the safety and improve the visibility of crossing locations. The, um, have they worked elsewhere? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the latter crosswalks are used, uh, geez, all over North America. You see them everywhere and Europe is, is big on them also. So, you know, it's, it's not something that we've created that's new. We've, we've probably just uh, sort of been on the lead end of things here in, in Ontario and Canada on, in installing them. Um, but it's clear that they definitely have uh, a benefit. I know the, the pedestrians like them. I know motors that I've talked to, they like them because, like I said, it gives them more of a visual cue uh, of a, a pedestrian crossing. So it seems to be, uh, it seems to be working out well. And, and you know what? It's only a matter of time till we start have people posing for pictures like the Beatles on them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm waiting we'll put, for the first picture we'll to pop up. First one. We'll put you in the first one. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I get to have the bare feet. I get to be Paul McCartney. <laughs> okay. um, but do, do drivers, though, I mean, when pedestrians and cyclists and everyone else are on them, the interesting part and the challenging part, to be quite honest, with, with something new like this is oftentimes you have different understandings depending on who is involved and how these things work. And sometimes that can be problematic. Do, you th- do, do drivers understand what this means? Do cyclists understand what this means? Do pedestrians understand what these crosswalks mean so that they actually are not going to cause more problems? Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that, that has changed uh, in the province is the uh, addition of pedestrian crossovers. Um, so as you may have heard, 
the ministry approved uh, these new pedestrian crossovers uh, that will begin installing in September. Um, and with that, it's a change in the rules of the road for the motorist. And so from now on, going forward, when a motorist approaches these new types of crossings, uh, they'll be identified by special signs, uh, potentially uh, flashing beacons. Uh, the motorist must now stop for the pedestrian to actually cross the roadway. So that's a law that, that has been implemented, whereas now, essentially, primarily, the motorist has the right of way unless a pedestrian is already in the roadway. Uh, now, when a vehicle is approaching, if there's a pedestrian staying on the side waiting to cross, the motorist must come to a stop. And so this law has been brought in for all of Ontario, so as in, in our industry, the biggest thing we look for and, and want is consistency. So if you're a driver in Hamilton and you go to Kingston for a hip concert and you see these types of crossings, you're going to know because you've seen them in Hamilton. So it's all about consistency for the, for the motorists and, and ensuring that the, there's a safety aspect uh, as we implement these new devices. David, just before I let you go, because uh, I know you want to get back to your game, um, you, as I say, you have bike lanes you're dealing with now. You have, I'm sure you're involved with dealing with the whole LRT thing, which we're not even going to start to get into today. We do enough of that. All these kind of things. If you had your choice, if you were given all consuming powers over Hamilton streets and had to go through nobody to make anything happen, what would be the thing you would do to try and make our streets work better? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, I'm born and raised in Hamilton. Uh, I raised my family here. I've had a, a great opportunity to work in, in, in different municipalities. This is my fourth municipality. Um, I've worked, worked for, for some very large cities. And, you know, Hamilton has a great traffic system. As, as much as uh, we like to, to criticize it at times, but we really do have a, an excellent system. And the, the biggest thing I see in our community is um, we need to, to really sort of change our, our social uh, behaviors around driving and, and uh, the aspects of other road users and, and respect towards other road users. Um, those are the biggest things that, that I see here in, in, in Hamilton. We will let you get back to your game. Still tied? Uh, it looks like, uh, I think we're down by two right now. Well, there's time. David yeah, Fergus, yeah. David Ferguson, Hamilton superintendent of traffic engineering. Appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, God. Take care. I think uh, I think David's phone was either about to run out of battery or explode. I'm not sure which <laughs> which was going to happen. Uh, interesting answer about what he would do if he could change anything to do with our roads. Essentially... I think if I understand what he was saying correctly, it is change entirely the social fabric of those who are using the roads. And, and honestly, you know, is that a, is, I, I don't think that's a, I think that's a good answer. I think that's a really good answer. And I think, it, it, again, I'm putting words in his mouth and I don't want to do that, but I also did not want his phone to literally blow up in his ear. That goes right across the spectrum. That means drivers have to be more respectful of pedestrians and cyclists and vice versa. Because sometimes, again, pardon the horrible pun, it's a one-way street, or at least it seems so, that every driver has to be responsible for all the change and nobody else does. He's right. The bike lanes in this city 
while they are not really, let's be honest, they're not really all that attractive in some places, but they are functioning okay. They're not used nonstop all year round because of the winter and everything else, but they're functioning okay. The cyclists and the cars are apart and everyone's fine. It's when you start to get them intermingled and you now have spots where cyclists don't stop for red lights, but cars do. And then you end up with situations where a cycle goes across, bicycle goes across the road or where a car opens its door when it's parking and doesn't see the bicyclist coming up beside it or, or pinches towards the curb and squeezes out a cyclist. If he's absolutely right. Now on the other point, go look, go take a drive sometime in the next few days down the Red Hill Creek Expressway. Now I would advise you to follow the speed limit because I have to believe that if they are putting up signs that are this big, and when I said that they are the size of a garage door, okay, I, you know, I was exaggerating, but not by a whole lot. I mean, honestly, as he said, they are five feet by four feet. These are the biggest 90 kilometer an hour speed limit signs you will ever see in your life. I don't even know where they get something like this made. They, they are bigger than four times the size of your usual speed limit sign. So I, I've got to believe that with these signs now going up there and go take a look just to, to check them out, but drive the speed limit. Cause I have to believe that there will be some police around because honestly, What kind of excuse could you come up with? If there is a sign that is that big and at at staggered points down and up the expressway, sorry, the parkway, got to get the right terminology. You're not going to have much of an excuse if a cop pulls you over and he goes, do you know how fast you were going? You say, I didn't know how fast the speed limit was. Well, there was just a speed limit sign the size of a drive-in movie screen. You probably should have been able to figure it out. And if you don't know, the cop is probably going to charge you with distracted driving because how could you not have seen that sign? I will be very interested to see if this has any kind of impact. And that's the, that's the thing here because I think this is a, a really interesting test too. If these signs cause people to slow down, it would suggest that it's not just that they didn't know what the speed was, but that it's a giant in-your-face reminder. Oh yeah, it's 90. And if that's the case, would this not make sense, even though they may not be the most aesthetically pleasing things to put up in a residential community somewhere, but this would this not be the kind of thing that you would then say, maybe we got to look at this some other places, maybe on the link. I was on the link the other day. Guarantee you that a guy or woman, I don't know which it was, I couldn't see. Guarantee you though that the car that blew by me, I think it's a 90 kilometer limit on the link, had to be doing 130 at least. At least. I'm driving along and all of a sudden, maybe if you put up the signs, It's a reminder. Now, there's always going to be the people, the idiots who are going to drive like a maniac anyway. I get that. But for the most people, this is going to be a really interesting test. If the numbers go way down, if suddenly everyone's driving the speed limit, this will be a really interesting thing to see how many other places signs like this start popping up around the city. Maybe, maybe the whole thing is we're just all so getting so darn old now that we need big, big, big visual cues because we're just can't see the other stuff. I don't know.
We'll see how it works, though. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.